Good morning, everyone. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Happy Easter to all of you. It is once again my privilege to come here this morning to share the Word of God with you in this so very special day, the most important date on the Christian calendar where we glorify and magnify the risen Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Before we begin, let us go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the privilege of standing here in your presence, Lord, knowing the truth of your gospel, the truth of your word. We thank you for the day when you became alive, Father, not simply coming out of the tomb in Jesus Christ, your Son, but also coming alive within us, those of us who have received your salvation, your magnificent salvation that was bought for us at Calvary's cross. We praise you, we thank you for this so very important day where we want to glorify you and magnify you for who you are and for all that you have done. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I would like to begin by asking you a question. What is the meaning of Easter? If you had to answer this question, what would you say? Your answer to this question determines how you celebrate this day. It is obvious that according to many surveys, one recent that I have seen from Statista, leading provider of market and consumer data, data they say that 84% uh, of Americans will be celebrating Easter in many different ways. And among the celebrations, according to the respondents, 60% said that they will be giving out candy baskets. That was the most popular response. Next, 57% said that they will have an egg hunt. Next, they said that 55% will be painting eggs with their children or grandchildren. And also, just about half said, 51% said that they are planning to go to a church today. That's a pretty good looking church over there, you see. And that was just about half of the respondents of the survey saying that they would be planning to go to a church as you have done as you are right here today. One other question of the survey was, what is the most important thing about Easter? The vast majority of the respondents said that the most important thing about Easter is the family coming together. A close second was when they answered, what is the most important thing about Easter? They said, the most important thing is the egg hunt. I really didn't know that the egg hunt was such a popular activity for Easter, but apparently it is. But yet, sadly, only a very small minority said that the most important thing about Easter is its spiritual meaning. What is the meaning of Easter to you? I can tell you that for us as Christians, what we celebrate today, what gives true meaning to this day, is the fact that Jesus Christ died for us on a cross. And after three days, he came out alive from the tomb. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the most important event in the history of the world. I repeat, the historical fact that Jesus Christ died, and after three days, he rose from the tomb alive, that is the most important event in the history of mankind. You may say, why is that? 
Well, since you asked, I am glad to respond. The Bible tells us that when God created man in the beginning, God created man to live forever without dying. Man was not susceptible to diseases, to sicknesses. Man was impervious to death. Man was created to live forever without dying. However, man, the first man, Adam, he disobeyed God. And in doing so, he became subject to death. And for that reason, all of us, every human being who was born ever since the first man was created, all of us, as part of mankind, also became subject to death. All of us will experience death one day. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death is spread to all men because all sinned. You see, when the first man sinned, when he disobeyed God, when he went against God's will, the Bible says that death also entered the world through that sin, through that disobedience. And at that moment, something truly significant and relevant happened. The Bible says not only death came to Adam, but also death is spread to all men, to all of us, to all mankind, because in the eyes of God, we have all sinned. Now you may say, wait a minute, preacher, that is not fair. I was not the one who disobeyed God in the beginning. Adam did, not me. That may be so, but the reality it is that when he disobeyed God, he inherited he took upon himself a sinful nature, a disobedient nature. And ever since he fell, that same disobedient nature passes on to every single human being who is born. All of us inherit, have inherited that disobedient nature, that sinful nature from the moment of our birth. Let's face it. If you place 100 toys in front of a child and you tell him or her, you can play with all these 99 toys over here, but that one you cannot touch. Sooner or later, guess which toy that child will be attracted to? It is human nature. We are all born with it. To do what is rebellious, to do what is disobedient, to do what is sinful. And that is exactly what happened to the first man in the beginning. The Lord told them in Genesis in chapter 2, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Out of certainly all the trees that existed in the garden where God had created man, he gave him the ability to eat out of all of them except for one. But eventually man fell into the temptation of eating to, of that forbidden tree, of that one. And ever since then, all of us, because of this disobedient nature, this sinful nature that we all inherit at the moment of birth, it is impossible for us to do what is right in the eyes of God. We are naturally against what pleases God. In our own, in our own sinful nature, in our own disobedient nature, we go against the things that God says. 
And so he was, as we see at the end of that verse. When God said this to Adam, he was saying this to all of us. For as we saw, God considered that all of us sinned. For we all have inherited that same disobedient nature. He said, you will surely die. As the old saying goes, there are two things in life that you cannot avoid. And that is death and taxes. Even though someone may argue that someone have found a way to squeal their way out of paying taxes, one thing that they cannot do is to avoid death. And that is for sure. The Bible is clear in telling us in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once and after this comes judgment. Do you see that God says it is appointed. Each and every one of us, God has already appointed a day where our life on earth will end. God has already appointed to each and every one of us a moment when we will leave this earth. And not only that, it is important to notice that God says it is appointed for men to die once. In this verse, God dispels the notion of reincarnation, as some may wrongly believe. That we can live on this earth and then we die. But then we come back to earth as a human being or as an animal or as an insect. And then we die again and then we come back. And the cycle goes on and on and on and on until we find some type of enlightenment or perfection. Otherwise the cycle continues. But God contradicts that and he affirms to us what is the truth. That man lives on this earth and die once. And then after that, God says, after death comes judgment. He also dispels the notion that after we die, we can go to a certain place if we still die in our sins. He gives us yet another opportunity after death where we can go to this place, kind of a waiting room for heaven, where we are purged of our sins, where we are cleansed of our sins. Some way, somehow, he purifies us, he washed us of our sins after we die. Nonsense, because God is specific in his own word in telling us that it is appointed for men to die once, and after death comes judgment. When we die, we don't go to a separate place where we can be washed and be saved afterwards and then be promoted to heaven. But the Bible tells us that after we die, we will meet our maker. You will see God face to face. And what will that judgment of God in your life be? If I die in my sins, if you die in your sins, the judgment is this, that death will bring us to eternity separated from God. Death brings us to an eternity separated from God. Not to a place of peace, not to a place of joy, but forevermore living separated from our Creator, from the Lord. And you may say, preacher, you really don't know the Bible. God is good. God is love. God is forgiven. How can it be that unless I am truly evil, unless I am the worst of the criminals who ever existed, how can you even imagine and say that this is what God is going to do? God is good. God is just going to allow everybody to come in. But the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 59, the Lord says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. 
It is clear by what the Bible says, by what God says in his own word, that no, God takes sin seriously. And on our own, there is nothing that we can do to give us hope after death. There is absolutely nothing we can do to save us from the doom of spending eternity separated from God. No one can cleanse himself of his own sins. No one can be good enough and perfect before God to say, I deserve to go to heaven. On the contrary, there are many verses in the Bible that we could quote, but the Bible tells us even more specifically in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned without exception. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Despite our best intentions before God, that means nothing. There are so many who believe that because they believe they are good or they have accumulated enough good works, that after they die, they will go to heaven because, after all, they are good citizens. They say, I'm a good person. I don't abuse anyone. I try to do good whenever I can. And I even go to church sometimes. Easter and Christmas, well, that ought, to get, that ought to count for something. But God is specific in telling us in his word as we are seeing that there is absolutely no amount of good works that I can do, that you can do, that will grant you entrance into heaven after we die. We are not saved by good works. We are not saved by how good we assume we are because in the eyes of God, we have all sinned and fall short of his glory. In fact, the Bible is even more specific in telling us in Ephesians in chapter 2 verse 9, we are saved not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is amazing so many religions in the world that tell their followers that if you can only be good enough, if you can only can accumulate enough good works, at the end then God will weigh your works. In a special scale. And if the good works outweigh the bad ones, then you are safe. Then you are going to go to heaven. Oh, but if your evil works, if your bad works outweigh the good ones, then, then you are going to hell. God never says that in his word in the Bible. On the contrary, as you can see, he says, we are not saved as a result of works so that no one may boast. That is, no one may be proud about it. If God were to allow us to think that of ourselves that we are good enough or that we have accumulated enough good works for us to be saved, then we would be proud about it. I would say, I was able to save myself. I deserve to go to heaven. I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm going to go to heaven while you are not. And God says, uh-uh. It doesn't work that way. No one can be saved as a result of work so that no one may boast. The Bible tells us in this Isaiah chapter 64, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy garment. Your works can never cause the salvation of your soul. Your works can never be the reason for the salvation of your soul. There isn't one single religion in the entire world that can truthfully tell you that you will die and go to heaven because of how good you are or because of the amount of good, good works you have produced. 
That is simply not true. In fact, I can give you an illustration in a historical story. Some of you may recall, I shared this with you eight years ago, the story of this man. His name is Sir Christopher Wren. He is one of the most famous English architects. He was also a scientist and a mathematician, but he is most known as an architect, particularly because of the 53 churches that he designed and built in England. Most famous is the one that you see as a backdrop on that portrait, which is this building, St. Paul's Cathedral in London. He designed it. It is a meticulous design. He supervised all the building, and it stands to this day in London, England. And he came one day in 1689 when the city officials of the town of Windsor in England, they came to Sir Christopher Wren saying, can you design and build us a new town hall? They gave him all the specifications that they wanted their town hall to be built. Sir Christopher Wren went to work, he designed all the plans and he supervised the construction. And so he was, as you can go to the city of Windsor, England today, and you can see that building that has been erected since the 17th century. And he did it according to all the specifications from the city officials. On the second floor, he built and designed the meeting rooms where the city leaders would conduct their businesses. But on the first floor, on the ground level, he left it as an open space where the farmers could go and sell their produce directly to their customers, similar to what would be a farmer's market today. And that is what the city officials had asked him to do. And so he did. Except that when the leaders went to the place for that dedication, for their final inspection, they were dismayed and horrified by one thing that they saw. There were no pillars on the inside supporting the ground above. Sir Christopher Wren had used a new technique for those times in which he only placed the pillars on the outside as you see in the perimeter. But there are no pillars on the inside supporting the ceiling on the inside. And they were saying, no, you have to do something different than this. We cannot be on the second floor with all of our weight and then we know for sure that the floor will open, the ceiling underneath will open and we all fall to our death. We wanted to put at least four pillars there so that the ceiling is secure. Mr. Wren was outraged by their request saying he was confident that the ceiling would stand and that he needed no pillars. He said, I will not place those pillars there because they destroy the beauty of my design. And I am confident that it does not, that ceiling the way that I designed it, it does not need those pillars there. But the city officials outruled him, overruled him. And eventually, despite of all his frustrations, he was forced to do this. And if you go to the city of Windsor, to that town hall today, you can still see those four pillars there today that he was forced to build and design and to construct it there to support the ceiling. Many years passed and Mr. Rand had long passed away. But the ceiling paint began to fade began to chip and crack. And so those city officials went to painters, to workmen, to 
refresh and repaint the ceiling. They went up in their scaffolds, and as they were painting the ceiling, they discovered something very strange. The top of the pillars didn't touch the ceiling. There was an almost interesting there was an almost unnoticeable gap between the top of the pillars and the ceiling that the city officials had never realized it was there. But after all those years, Mr. Wren had been proven right. The ceiling needed no support to stay as it was, safe and secure. If he could be only alive, to see the face of those city leaders when they found out the truth, I'm sure he'll have a laugh and a smile on his face. To this day, you can still go to the city of Windsor, and under close examination, you can still see that gap between the top of the pillars and the ceiling above. Does God want you and me to be good people, to be pillars in our society, to do good and to have good works? Oh, he certainly does. It is important that we indeed have a testimony of being pillars in our families, in our society, in our communities in general. But our salvation does not depend on our good works. Our salvation stands alone by the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is absolutely nothing that we can do to go against what the Word of God says, that we are saved not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We may be saved, but not because of our works, not because of anything that we can do on our own behalf. And if that is the case, if you are convinced that your good works cannot save your own soul, cannot change the destiny of our souls after we die, I ask you this, where do you believe you go after you die? Where do you believe you go after you die? If today is the last day of your life, your body would be buried, but your soul, the spiritual part in you, would live forever. Where would your soul go? The Bible tells us there are many people in the world, millions and millions of people in the world, who are continually haunted by this question, and they are afraid to think about it. That is in Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 15, that says that many, many people live all their lives afraid of death. I remember when I was a kid, about nine, ten years of age, for a moment, for a phase in my life as a kid, I was terrified of death. My parents were not particularly religious, but some way, somehow, that notion came to me, and I started having nightmares as to what would happen to me after I would die. And I remember, without having heard much about God, and after having gone with my mom to a few Catholic masses, I remember saying, God, please make me a cartoon. In my small mind, I thought, if I could ask God to turn me into a cartoon, I figure cartoons, they don't die. That was my solution. That was my own salvation. But I was terrified for such a long time in thinking that my life would come to an end, and I was nine years old. 
But little that I know that now that I understand what the Bible says and read in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 15 that says there are millions of people who not only when they are children but even in their adult lives they are afraid of death because they don't know what would happen to them afterwards. Now on the other hand there are those who say oh you don't have anything to worry about. There is no such thing as afterlife. We only live here and there is no such thing as religion or God or a spiritual world. We only live here and after we die, that's it. Everything is annihilated. And there are others who say, no, God does exist and there is an afterlife, but God is good. There's no such thing as sin. God doesn't hold a grudge. He's not going to keep on putting this weight on our conscience. He created us for good, for us to live forever with him. And when, they ask the, and when they ask this question, they say, after we die, we all go to heaven. God is just going to, in the end, open the gates of heaven and say, come on in, everybody. I was just joking about that stuff. And sin is not real. Well, I don't know who would you want to believe. The word of man or the word of God. As for me, I want to believe and I want to follow the word of God. What God says. Does sin exist? 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. God is very clear in telling us that yes, sin does exist and it is the cause for us to be separated from God for eternity. In fact, one of the most terrifying most horrifying passages of the entire Bible is in the book of Revelation in chapter 20, verse 12 and 15, where the Bible says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now tell me if God is serious or not about sin. This is a bleak picture. And you may ask, if we are not saved by reincarnation, if we are not saved in purgatory, if we are not saved by religion, if we are not saved by good works, then how can we be saved? Who can forgive our sins? Who can cleanse us? Who can make us somehow worthy of going to heaven after we die? And God tells us in his word that there is a very high price that must be paid for our sins to be forgiven and expunged. There is a very high price that must be paid for us to be guaranteed forgiveness of our sins. And that is in Hebrews in chapter 9 verse 22 the Bible says, And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of our faults, our mistakes, our failures before God. Now, when God says without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, shedding of blood is an expression that simply means death, sacrifice. 
God is giving us the answer that what could cleanse us from our, from our sins, the forgiveness that we could have for our sins that would purify us and make us by his, by his grace able to go to him and spend eternity not separated from him but with him in heaven would be the sacrifice for our sins. A sacrifice of blood for our sins. Would you die for the salvation of your loved one? Would you die for the salvation of anyone? Would you die saying to God, I give my own life for my own salvation. God, please take me. Save me. Save my mom. Save my dad. Save my wife. Save my husband. Save my children. Take my life. Would your life be enough? Would my life be enough? If God says that a sacrifice is needed, whose sacrifice would be satisfactory to God? You? Me? The Bible tells us in Psalm 49, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. Wait a minute, that doesn't make sense, preacher. God said that a sacrifice, a shedding of blood needs to happen for us to be forgiven of our sins. But God is saying that there is absolutely no human being on the face of the earth that can be sacrificed for our salvation, for our forgiveness, then who can be saved? If a sacrifice is necessary, but there is none of us who is perfect to be sacrificed for our salvation, then how can we be saved? God saw our need. The Bible tells us that the Lord could have sought throughout the entire earth. But as we saw at the beginning, all have sinned. And there is no one righteous, not even one. And God saw my condition and your condition. And he saw how lost we were that no one could be that perfect sacrifice for our salvation. And do you know what God did? He did the unthinkable. God himself decided that he would step out of heaven. And he himself would come down to earth in the form of a man. Not a sinner like you and me. But a perfect man. Sinless. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. God incarnate. God who left eternity and made himself in the form of a man to be presented here on earth as the perfect sacrifice. And that is exactly what the Lord did. The Bible tells us when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Once again, the Lord confirms none of us can be saved on the basis of our own good works or how good you think you are. That's religion talk. Religion is simply man's attempt to be good enough, to do good enough so that he can deserve to go to heaven. But God has already said no one can be saved by works so that no one is proud about it, so that no one may boast. 
And so since we could not save ourselves, the Bible says, not on the basis of deeds, good deeds that we have done, but he himself came to save us in mercy. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He was the one who paid the price for us. As we saw in Psalm 49, there was no man who could redeem his own soul. He could try forever, and he would not accomplish that goal. But Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, he was the one who shed his blood for my salvation and your salvation. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers. Since the first man, that same disobedient nature, the sinful nature, has been inherited by each and every one of us human beings. But the Bible says, but we have been redeemed with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. As John the Baptist said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ was that perfect Lamb. Jesus Christ was that perfect sacrifice. And you may remember this verse in Hebrews in chapter 9. It is appointed for you and me to die once. And after this comes judgment. That judgment fell on Jesus Christ. On that day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ suffered and was tortured at the cross for six hours. From nine in the morning until three in the afternoon when he passed away. My question to you is, if everyone will be saved, if there is no such thing as sin, if God is just going to do in the end, open the doors of heaven and say, come on in everybody, I was just joking. Then why did God allow his own son to suffer all of that? Then why did God allow the judgment that was for my life and for your life to fall upon Jesus Christ, his own son? On the contrary, the torture and the suffering of the cross only proves how serious God is about sin and the condemnation of it. And don't you forget it. The question is, what would you do about it? Jesus suffered for those six hours on the cross. And he accomplished for us what we couldn't do for all eternity. You either believe the judgment and what Jesus Christ did for you at the cross, what he has already accomplished in those six torturous hours, or you would have to save your own soul without the possibility of ever ending. The torment of eternity separated from God. Six hours believing in Christ or eternity counting on your own self. The Bible tells us, that what Jesus did for us at the cross, that brought reconciliation between us and God. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God was reconciling us with himself through the death of Jesus Christ at the cross. 
But I want you to understand this. The death of Jesus Christ was the sacrifice necessary, as we saw, without the shedding of blood, there will be no forgiveness of sin. The death of Jesus Christ was the price that the Father imposed on his own son for the, self, for the forgiveness of our sins. So that our sins could be cleansed. But I'll tell you, the death of Jesus Christ alone would not have been enough. Because the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ had not been raised from the dead, your faith is worthless. And you are still in your sins. If Jesus had, even as the perfect son of God, if he had simply died on that cross and remained in the tomb, then we would still be lost. Because in the end, death would have still won. We would still be doomed to eternity, separated from God, because death would be the victor. But we know that that was not the case. The Bible tells us that he is risen. As the angel spoke to the women in Matthew 28, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. Just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. Acts chapter 13 says, when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But he didn't stay there. Why? Because the Bible says that God raised him from the dead. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 says, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions, he was also raised because of our justification. Do you get that? Do you understand that? It was necessary for Jesus to die for our transgressions, for our sins, for our faults, because none of us could pay that price. But he had not only to die for our sins, but it was also a must that he would be resurrected for our justification, for our salvation, as the proof that death lost and Jesus Christ won. Recently, I read the story of a man named Paul Kalinithi in one of the latest issues of Christianity Today. In 2013, Paul was completing his medical residency, and he will soon become a neurosurgeon. And it was at that point that Paul was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. He was only 36 years old. In his first meeting with his oncologist, his oncologist told him, Paul, this is not the end. This is not even the beginning of the end. Paul, this is only the end of the beginning. Paul died in 2015. He had grown up in a Christian home but he abandoned his faith. It is said that after his diagnosis, he found God again. Only God knows. Only the Lord knows. But I'll tell you, the words of his oncologist are true. Death is not the end. But death is only the beginning of our existence throughout eternity. Compared to eternity, our lives here on earth are nothing but a vapor. 
The most important question that you must answer in your lifetime, and I pray you answer it today. Where will you spend eternity? After you pass from this life, where do you believe that you will spend eternity? In the beginning, I said to you that the resurrection was the most important event in the history of the world. And because you asked me why, I'm answering until now. And I hope that after all that I have said, that all that you have taken from this has brought you to this point where you simply ask this question, what must I do to be saved? The Bible tells us in Romans in chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Recognize that disobedient nature, the sin in your life, your failures, your past mistakes, no matter who you are. If the Spirit of God has ministered to your heart today, I know and I pray that you have been convinced and recognized that you are a sinner in the eyes of God. And that there is nothing that you can do on your own to save your soul after you die. But at the same time, not only I pray that you recognize yourself as a sinner in the eyes of the Lord, but that you repent at this moment of your sins, knowing that Jesus Christ has already paid the price for you at the cross. And not only has he paid the price at the cross by dying for you, he rose from the dead, guaranteeing that we have salvation in him by repenting of our sins and by believing in him. Don't delay. We do not own tomorrow. But in Jesus' name, I pray that the Spirit of the Lord will have ministered to your life and that you are convinced that you must believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior for the salvation of your soul. Let us pray. Dear God, we are so thankful as we celebrate today not only the death of Jesus Christ, but his resurrection as he arose from that tomb. And we thank you, we praise you for the salvation we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I pray, Father, as we know our brother Peter will be praying for all of us now, that your Holy Spirit would minister to those who were convicted of the message of the gospel. May they receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. May your name continue to be glorified in our lives. And may our hearts and our lips evermore continue to glorify you for all that you have done for us. Bless us now, we pray, in Jesus' name.